This program is brought to you by Preserve Gold, the number one precious metals IRA provider. Call 855-962-3322. Made in China, but qualify for U.S. tax breaks. The Treasury Department's guidelines on solar panels raising eyebrows in some sectors. The Treasury saying the panels only need to be assembled stateside to make the cut, even if the parts are made elsewhere. Investors rallying behind the news, but critics warn it will help boost China's dominance in the sector rather than U.S. manufacturing. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. First up, American-made solar panels, but are they really crafted on U.S. soil? The Treasury Department is clarifying what counts as being made in America, saying on Friday companies can claim tax credits even if their panels are entirely made in China. Under the Inflation Reduction Act, companies can qualify for tax credits if 40 percent of the panel's components are made in the U.S. That's to boost domestic jobs in the face of China's dominance in the sector. The Treasury also offering an additional credit, up to 10 percent, for solar panels assembled in the U.S., even if the cells and wafers are made in other countries, like China. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen calling these tax credits key to driving investment and ensuring all Americans share in the growth of the green energy economy. Investors responded, with the top U.S. solar manufacturer seeing shares surge 26 percent following the news. But not everyone sees it as a win. Executive Director of the Solar Energy Manufacturing for America Coalition, Mike Carr, calls it a missed opportunity to build a domestic solar manufacturing supply chain. Noting China's dominance in the sector, he added, we fear that this guidance will cement their dominance over these critical pieces of the solar supply chain. This comes as the Biden administration has set the goal of generating 100 percent of the nation's electricity from carbon-free energy sources by 2035. A 78-year-old American citizen sentenced to life in prison by a Chinese court. The man is 78-year-old John Xingguan Leong, a Hong Kong permanent resident. Now Hong Kong's chief executive is responding after the man was convicted on spying charges Monday. Chief Executive John Lee explained there is a reporting mechanism for arrests made in China that involve Hong Kong. The main purpose of this uh, reporting mechanism is to allow, first of all, the family members to know about the situation uh, so that uh, they can uh, do what is necessary to help uh, the uh, person concerned. Equally, if there's any requests uh, for assistance to the Hong Kong government, of course, we'll offer the assistance as much as we can as requested. Details on the case have not been publicly released. Hong Kong Secretary for Security Chris Tang also commented Monday, saying Chinese authorities had reported the man's arrest to the city through the notification mechanism in 2021. Court statements show Leong was apprehended on April 15th of that year. That's after an investigation launched by a city-level bureau of China's national security body. Trials for cases like these are often held behind closed doors, with little information released to the public. Accusations generally focus on infiltration, secrets gathering and threatening state security. 
Beijing's ruling Communist Party exercises absolute control over legal matters, civil society, and freedom of information. So outside demands for information often get blocked. Speaking of spies, an intelligence report from Belgium says Chinese espionage is alive and well in the European nation. Let's zoom in. A recent government report by the Belgian VSSE Security Service found that spies for the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, are extremely active in the country. Belgium is not only a U.S. ally, but also the de facto capital of the European Union. The report assesses security threats that Belgium faces, and it lists Chinese spies as one of them, alongside threats from terrorism and the war in Ukraine. The report says to represent its interests, China also continues to use a very broad spectrum of techniques to spread its influence, employed overtly or covertly in a gray zone, between lobbying, interference, political influence, espionage, economic blackmail, and disinformation campaigns, between which the boundary is often vague. The Belgian agency notes that the CCP doesn't rely just on traditional spies to carry out its operations. Oftentimes it uses private citizens, Chinese businesses, state media, and lobbyists. The agency concluded, with the presence of a large number of major international institutions, Belgium is a very attractive target for Chinese espionage and influence peddling. Another segment of Beijing's espionage efforts exposed, and one victim is speaking out. Federal authorities recently indicted 64-year-old Liang Tang for acting as an agent of the Chinese Communist Party. The Boston man allegedly spent four years spying on the Chinese community in the U.S. Here are the details. Prosecutors said Liang began working for the communist regime in 2018 and continued through at least last year. According to court papers, he intended to, quote, covertly advance the PRC's goals and agenda within the United States. PRC is short for the People's Republic of China, the country's formal name. In one case, Liang allegedly organized counter-protests at an August 18, 2019 rally in Boston. The event had supported Hong Kong's pro-democracy movement. Here's what one rally-goer said she saw firsthand. We had already received threatening messages before the rally. They also said they would come with guns and sticks to attack our protesters. The day of the demonstration, Hui witnessed the now-charged Liang handing out red flags to a group of Chinese people. While I was speaking, many counter-protesters held Chinese flags and tried to cover my face and those of others on stage. They harassed us and even hurled insults. Another suspected Chinese agent attacked volunteers and vandalized posters at the rally. He followed Hui all the way home to her school dorm after the event. Hui said she reported the case to the police four years ago. I'm pretty sure that this person who followed me also had a connection to the Chinese consulate, but the U.S. authorities took too long to investigate and failed to arrest him. He soon realized the situation and returned to China without coming back. According to the indictment, Liang also took photos and videos of pro-democracy protesters at the rally, later sending them to Chinese officials in Beijing. Hui said Liang later did it again at a different Hong Kong rally the following month. Liang's arrest came just weeks after the FBI busted two other men. They were accused of running a covert Chinese police station in New York.
I hope that not only government officials become aware of the problem, but that the general public realizes how widespread the CCP's transnational repression is. Liang pleaded not guilty last Thursday. He was released on a $25,000 bail and surrendered his passport. His next court appearance is set for July 6th. Nations are sounding the alarms over China's overseas operations. On Monday, German officials said two Chinese police outposts are still active in the country. That's despite Beijing's promise to shut them down back in February. The two stations were not fixed location offices, but mobile facilities aiming to carry out official duties on behalf of the Chinese regime. Last year, Berlin called on Beijing to shut down its police outposts in the country. Despite being China's largest trade partner, Berlin is reconsidering its bilateral relations with Beijing. And Germany isn't the only country taking note of China's global ambitions. According to human rights watchdog Safeguard Defenders, China operates more than 100 police facilities in 53 countries, including the U.S., Canada and Britain. Of those, the U.S. is one of those taking action. Earlier this year, the FBI raided a secret police unit in Manhattan, bringing criminal charges against individuals linked to the operation. The criminal complaint alleged defendants took orders from Chinese authorities to locate and intimidate Chinese dissidents living in the United States. U.S. Congressman Mike Gallagher warned that there's at least two more outposts on U.S. soil one in New York City and another in Los Angeles. While a report from human rights organization Safeguard Defenders shows six of them are still running. Over a million Tesla vehicles are getting recalled in China starting later this month. The announcement came after an investigation into defects in the cars done by a Chinese regulator last week. Here are the details. Chinese watchdogs are making Tesla do what they call a product recall. The U.S. automaker has said it will deploy software updates to more than one million vehicles. It will include changes to braking methods and more warnings about the use of accelerator pedals. While Chinese regulations defined the actions as a product recall, it was unclear if drivers might need or would be eligible to return vehicles to Tesla for refunds. The regulator's statement said that from May the 29th, Tesla will issue over-the-air software updates to 1.1 million units of its Model S, Model X, Model 3 and Model Y cars. This includes both imported and China-made models. It said the concerned vehicles did not allow drivers to turn off regenerative braking, which works to recoup energy from the process of slowing a car. The cars also did not provide enough warnings when drivers stepped on the accelerator pedal hard. Those factors combined could increase the risk of collision. The update will restore the option of switching off regenerative braking and warn drivers when they step hard on the accelerator pedal. Chinese police are currently investigating a fatal crash involving a Model Y, with the car's brake function a key focus of the probe. Chinese police have been investigating a crash involving a Model Y car. Last November, a driver lost control of the vehicle. The accident killed a motorcyclist and a high school student and injured three others. At the time, Tesla said videos showed the car's brake lights were not on while it was speeding, and data showed the driver had failed to step on the brakes. Last December, Tesla recalled more than 400,000 cars in China. About one-third of the company's cars were sold in the Chinese market in 2022. Relations are thawing between Russia and China. 
After over 160 years, Moscow is opening up a major port to Beijing, granting permission for it to ship Chinese goods starting this June. Analysts told news outlet Lianhe Zaobao that it gives China the upper hand in its relations with Russia and reflects Russia becoming increasingly isolated by the West because of the Ukraine war. The announcement came on Monday. The port in question is called Vladivostok. It's Russia's largest port in the Pacific Ocean. It's also home to Russia's Pacific fleet. Vladivostok used to be part of China in the 1800s, but Russia annexed it in 1860. Since then, northeastern China lost its ocean access and had to route its goods first on railroads, then through the port of Dalian, an over 600-mile journey. Access to Vladivostok cuts that distance by 80 percent. Russia is lashing out at French President Emmanuel Macron. On Sunday, Macron said Moscow has, quote, entered a form of subservience with regards to China, adding that the Kremlin already went through a geopolitical defeat. A Kremlin spokesman pushed back on the comment, saying Russia's relations with China have the character of a special strategic partnership. Western leaders have been urging Chinese leader Xi Jinping to help end Russia's war in Ukraine. Xi spoke to the Ukrainian president in April. Beijing is also sending a special envoy to Kyiv for a visit on Tuesday. He will be the highest-ranking Chinese official to visit Ukraine since Russia started its invasion. Coming up, Vietnam and China in a standoff over the South China Sea. This time, it's all about oil drilling operations. Is a war in sight? It's not just, you know, say who could win a fight in the South China Sea. But this is a much broader uh, sort of struggle. And you have ways you can apply economic pressure, financial pressure, uh, and you know, even propaganda, psychological pressure uh, in this fight. And you are best advised to really spread the battlefield and use every tool you have at your, at your resources and make it so that it's not worth it for China uh, to do what it is doing in the South China Sea. We spoke to Grant Newsham, retired Marine Colonel, about the situation there and steps to take going forward. More on that after the break, here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. A standoff between Vietnam and China in the South China Sea. The two sides now sending ships to the region. This after Vietnam tried to expand oil drilling operations there. But could the dispute trigger a war? We hear from Grant Newsham, retired Marine Colonel, about what's really going on. He's also the author of When China Attacks. Grant Newsham, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Well, glad to be here. Thank you very much. Right now in the South China Sea, China and Vietnam are having a standoff. This is after Vietnam started some oil drilling fields in the area, China sending a, a bunch of ships. What do you make of this? Oh, it's pretty much business as usual. Uh, if you look back years, uh, say just a decade, say in 2014 or so, uh, the Chinese moved their own drilling rig into Vietnamese waters and there was a standoff for a, a bit of time. And the Vietnamese went out to try and disrupt things. The Chinese Coast Guard uh, was ramming them, using water cannons on them. And the Chinese Navy was uh, just over the horizon, standing by just in case. So this is a fight that's been going on a long time between the 
uh, Vietnamese and the Chinese in the South China Sea. China, as we know, says the whole thing belongs to China, just about. And the Vietnamese uh, say, no, it doesn't. And they have their own, their own uh, claims to territory. And there we have it. So this really is nothing new. And it, it reflects really this fundamental animosity uh, between the Vietnamese and the Chinese. And Grant, as you mentioned, you know, this is nothing new. In 2019, there was a similar standoff that actually lasted two months. How long do you see this one lasting? Oh, anyone's guess, I would suggest a week or two, but that's really is just a guess. And, and really to go back to just how uh, contentious this area has been uh, and the, the ill will that exists, particularly on the Vietnamese side. Uh, in 1988, the Chinese uh, grabbed uh, a small island in the Spratlys that was occupied by Vietnamese forces. And at the end of the, the skirmish, there were about 64 Vietnamese sailors and Marines standing knee deep in the water on a reef. And the Chinese Navy gunned them down, uh, shot them all. And this is actually on YouTube. And for many years, the Vietnamese Navy used this almost as a recruiting tool. Uh, but at the same time, Vietnam hedges its, as it hedges its bets. It's got a huge neighbor to the north, the Chinese and it has to sort of restrain itself somewhat, but nonetheless, they are willing to defend their interests. And to your point, it seems the Chinese regime has been more and more aggressive in recent years. Could this kind of a conflict or a misunderstanding actually lead to a war? Uh, yes, really, you never know what's going to lead to a pretty big war. I think if you look at all the big ones we've been in, Often it seems like these small events that don't have any real significance by themselves lead to this just chain of events that lead to something uh, that is horrific. And so you never quite know. The South China Sea, you know, just might be the place where you know something happens. You know, everybody's focused on Taiwan, uh, but you never know where an event is going to happen that is going to anger people so much that they go to war. And Grant, in terms of this standoff, will the U.S. get involved? I don't think they'll get involved directly. I'd be very surprised if they did that. Uh, you might see uh, some more U.S. Navy ships coming into the area uh, just to show we're around and uh, we're interested. We have uh, gone down to help out some Malayan, uh, Malaysian uh, oil drilling or oil exploration ships uh, down the southern part of the South China Sea uh, in Malaysian waters. That was a year or two ago. Uh, the Malaysians did, of course, um, say, well, couldn't you have stuck around longer? Uh, the Chinese were down there harassing the ships. That's why they, they were there. The Chinese harassment uh, of uh, foreign ships, particularly the, the countries around the South China Sea that are exploring in their waters, uh, fishing in their waters. Chinese harassment is continuous, ongoing, and there's more of it. Uh, but America, Japan, India, and other Southeast Asian nations are watching closely as well. And Grant, I want to zoom in on that political aspect because it seems if we just look at ideology, Vietnam is still communist, but there's this trend in you know growing partnerships with countries that stand up to communist China. For instance, earlier this month, the U.S. and Vietnam, well, a few weeks ago, the U.S. and Vietnam pledged to boost ties when Secretary of State Antony Blinken was there. What do you make of that movement? Oh, inconsistency is a permanent part of foreign relations, and it always has been. 
And really, there's nothing wrong with that, to my way of thinking. Um, you know, keep in mind that you know, Vietnam is run by a, a communist dictatorship, basically, a communist regime. And the Americans have always, just as any country does, they look at their broader interests, they try to weigh things, and they will do business with people uh, who may not check every block in the we like you column or we agree with you column. Uh, but in the case of Vietnam, geography, politics, and just the nature of really the Vietnamese people themselves uh, suggest to the Americans, I think, that we would like to have you closer to us. Uh, and uh, you're a very necessary part of what we're trying to do to, to deal with the PRC. Given that, how do you deal with a regime like the Chinese regime if they just deal with these as scrap paper? Well, you've got to deal with them from a position of strength and considerable strength to the point that it's not worth it for them to uh, take you on. Uh, and it's not just, you know, say who could win a fight in the South China Sea, but this is a much broader uh, sort of struggle. And you have ways you can apply economic pressure, financial pressure, uh, and even propaganda, psychological pressure uh, in this fight. And you are best advised to really spread the battlefield and use every tool you have at your, at your resources. And make it so that it's not worth it for China uh, to do what it is doing in the South China Sea. Uh, and you know, that's a pretty simple strategy. It's easy to say. Uh, but to make it actually work in practice, of course, is a, a challenge. So it's easy for commentators like me to tell people what they ought to do, but to actually be the person who has to do it, uh, say, in an administration, that's a, a bigger challenge. But nonetheless, the, the basic issues, the basic uh, things you need to do are not all that hard uh, to figure out. Grant Newsham, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow.